welcome to Movement Memos, a truth out podcast about things you should know if you want to change the world. I'm your host, Kelly Hayes. Election day is here, and many of us are feeling stressed and anxious. In the last week, we have published four episodes of the show in an effort to help people plan, prepare, and steady themselves for election day and the tumult that could follow. We've built these episodes around questions and requests from our listeners, and I hope they have been useful. We have covered a number of topics, including safety planning, holding on to hope, and what to expect in the streets this week if you're protesting. If you want to check out that marathon effort, those episodes will be linked in the transcript and the show notes on our website. Today, we are going to talk about what to do with ourselves emotionally right now, because we are looking at a hailstorm of news, and even if we get the electoral outcomes we are hoping for, there are a lot of bad things that could happen in the coming days and months in connection with this election. Our anxieties are countless. We have also seen escalations from Trump supporters in recent days, with Trump's fandom gathering around polling places and even attempting to swarm a Biden campaign bus and run it off the road. On Saturday, we saw Trump's disturbing alignment with law enforcement on display when police used pepper spray to break up a march to a polling place in Graham, North Carolina. But we are also seeing cause for hope. As Liana Firsterai reported on Saturday in Truth Out, in Florida, North Carolina, and Michigan, three major battleground states, voters under 29 have cast over 600,000 early votes, where the same age and demographic only cast 76,829 ballots at the same point in 2016, an almost 700% increase. In 2016, Donald Trump won Michigan by a mere 10,704 votes. We do not know what will happen, and it's important that we learn how to inhabit that uncertainty and how to be calm and effective in that space. So how do we get there? Our fears are valid, and our coping skills aren't always the best. So today we are going to talk about how to face this moment not just today, but tomorrow and in the weeks to come, because we have a lot of uncertainty and struggle ahead. To have that conversation, I want to welcome back our friend Tunisia Jagernoth, who has previously joined us on the show to talk about collective grief, mutual aid, and how we can process the trauma we are collectively experiencing. Tunisia is an organizer, an artist, a circle keeper, and a dear friend of mine. Tunisia, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Kelly. I'm really happy to be here with you. How are you doing today, friend? Are you as involuntarily amped as the rest of us? I am feeling, I'm definitely feeling that anticipation, but I'm one of these people due to, I think, the various crises that I've been through over the course of my life. I am one of these people who gets super calm and focused and grounded as we are in a crisis and um, as the crisis approaches. So like maybe a week or two ago, I was definitely super anxious doing various scenarios in my head. Today, 
I feel more like I'm observing the situation and in a kind of grounded preparatory mode, which for me means there's like a little bit of dissociation involved with that, but there's also like, okay, this is what my system does in, in moments of crisis. Like we're, we're paying attention, ready to take action as needed. That's just where I'm at. How are you? I would say that I am stressed and anxious. This is definitely a day and a stretch of days when I would normally be with my friends and co-strugglers in a physical space. We would be watching the returns come in, we would be reassuring each other, and making each other laugh, and sharing our fears. And while I know you can do those things remotely, I am one of those people who hasn't really mastered those transitions yet, which I think is a lot of us. I'm really an extroverted person in a lot of ways, as people have probably noticed. So I get a lot of energy and strength from being around other people. So I just want to keep it 100% real. I'm holding that, and this is not an easy day. And I am eager to push forward my own practice in terms of managing how I'm experiencing all of this. So thank you for joining me to grapple with all the things. I, I appreciate it. Absolutely. Yeah, I thank you for making this space for real talk, Kelly. So before we dive into managing our feelings, I'd like people to understand a little more about some of the work you do, because we do some of the same things and have launched some great projects together, but you are also a circle keeper, and I would kind of like folks to understand what that means as we enter this conversation. Yeah, I can definitely talk a little bit about the role of a circle keeper. I really think about circle keeping as facilitation. And there are a lot of people out there who have these skills. So you are creating a container for a very intentional, focused conversation to take place. And you're coming to this circle in this space, not as a participant, but really as a holder. And so you're, you're doing all the things that facilitators do. You are hearing different perspectives. You are listening for commonalities. You're listening for conflicts. You're trying to create synthesis. I practiced acupuncture um, and traditional East Asian medicine for about, you know, 10 plus years. And then in 2016, I closed uh, Sage Community Health Collective, which was the sliding scale wellness collective that I co-founded with three other people. And I quit my practice to transition toward practicing healing justice in a more collective manner through one, creative practices like theater, storytelling, but but two, trying to really lean in toward transformative justice and prison abolition through the practice of conflict resolution, community accountability. And that, for me, involves um, creating circles. And we are grateful for that because your energy and insights are really important to your fellow organizers right now. We are getting mad at each other, and we are crying a lot, and we need circles. We need grounding. And just really quickly, you know, I want to give a um, quick, you know, thought on the frameworks that I'm grounded in and that I will bring into our conversation as I have been able to internalize them and embody them, which is not perfect, 
So I do bring in a, a healing justice framework, which is all about collective practices that help us to really intervene on those impacts on our bodies, minds, and hearts from the various systems of oppression that we're living in. I also bring in um, myself as a student of transformative justice. I feel like I'm always learning how to better practice it and live it. Um, Same with prison abolition. So I am learning constantly about how to practice it, um, prefigure the world we want to live in, and also grapple with real life everyday stuff. I also because I'm a former acupuncturist, I do bring in the frameworks of traditional East Asian medicine, which really are grounded in, you know, ideas of yin and yang, pushing back against binary thinking, which I can maybe talk about more, but seasons and nature are a big part of our framework. So nature warning. When Tunisia and I were talking about what we could talk about today that might be helpful. We talked about the reciprocal care that we are all going to need in the days ahead. We talked about safety plans and grounding exercises. And we talked about how we and others often suggest that people turn to their friends and loved ones for support during these times. We often tell people, you have people, and remind them to have conversations about safety planning and how people like to be comforted when they're afraid and all of that. But something that came up for us when we were talking about that advice was that some people don't feel like they have people. That may be because they are truly isolated in various ways, or it could just be the product of the chaos we're all experiencing right now. A lot of people are running on fumes, and that can make it hard to ask for the support we need because we're afraid of overburdening the people we care about. We also talked about how being part of an activist community gives us strength, and how lucky we are that when things get hard, we've had opportunities over the years to sit down in a room and listen to each other and troubleshoot and brainstorm about how to get through it. Now we have to do all of that remotely, but many of us are still building that plane in flight. So we thought the best thing we could offer today would be a Movement Memos version of one of those sit-downs with you all our listeners. We are going to address some of the messages we've gotten from people who have reached out to the show or to us personally about their fears and what they're going through, and to try to support you all if these are feelings that you're struggling with too. This is not therapy or a substitute for therapy by any means, but if you think it would be useful to sit down with us and grapple with some things together, we are here to grapple. So the first concern I want to tackle is the one I just mentioned. Some people feel completely alone right now, like they have no one to lean on, for whatever reason, whether there are actually people in their proximity or not. They feel completely alone and isolated, like there's no one to help them process what they're experiencing. If we had a friend or a comrade in the room expressing that struggle, what might you say to them? Yeah, I, being completely honest, I have been in moments like this, and I still find myself at times feeling this way. I can definitely relate to feeling, you know, completely alone, scared, and like I don't have anyone to lean on. 
I do think there's something about this that implicates our culture and our society and so on and so forth, right? But the fact of the matter is when you're having this experience, it's crushing, it's isolating. A really quick story I want to tell, if that's okay. So in 2016, when I closed Sage, probably in April, it was one of these days when, you know, in Chicago, right, March, April, the weather is kind of iffy until like June, maybe. Anyway, it was one of these really chilly kinds of days where it was windy, but also bright, just kind of confusing on the body. Anyway, I was walking south on Milwaukee and I was in exactly this state where like I truly felt very alone. I didn't know what the future would really bring for me. I felt like I didn't have anybody really to lean on. And I honestly felt numb. And I I truly at that time felt like I don't know that I will ever feel anything different ever again. So I'm walking south on Milwaukee between diversity and, oh, Belmont and diversity anyway. And I see in front of me this young person pick up this little bird and he picks it up and he starts chasing like his friend with it and the friend runs off and the young person like dropped the bird in the middle of the sidewalk and I ran over to the bird that was just like disoriented sitting in the middle of the sidewalk and I just like guarded the bird and I started crying and I'm like we I have to do something for this bird and as I'm sitting there crying And the wind is blowing on my face and it's super cold now because it's cold and it's windy and it's wet on my face and the sun is now shining on my face. I'm like, oh my God, I'm feeling something. And I started laughing, right? So it was just like one of these moments where um, (laughs) it was like, okay, this is a moment where I'm having sort of the opposite experience of what I ever thought I would feel. I did have someone I could call. I called them in that moment and we we, uh, worked on the bird situation. But anyways, what got me through that period of time and what has since gotten me through periods of time like that are really a, a couple things that I want to offer as frameworks. In traditional East Asian medicine, we do think about, you know, individual people can have seasons in the same way that the earth can have seasons. And one of the things that we say a lot is, as above, so below. And how I interpret that is, we, there are ways in which we are little microcosms of what is going on in the bigger picture for better or for worse. Sometimes in our life, we can have these seasons and sometimes in a day we can have these seasons. So that particular part, that particular time in my life, I would think of as winter where the trees are barren. It, everything has slowed down. Things can feel and look a little bit bleak. And yet this is the time when there's a lot of activity 
under the surface of the soil. And it's it's actually a really necessary time for our earth and ourselves to go through before our spring comes and we can re-emerge anyway. So that was my my winter moment. And I think it I giving ourselves the permission to have seasons can be helpful. So not expecting ourselves to be in summertime or springtime even all the time. I hope that makes sense. I love that. Sometimes our minds make hard turns and we have to figure out how to negotiate with it. I am definitely someone who struggles with managing and tempering emotion. And I really rely on my ability to sort things and to systematize things into actions I can take or things that I think need to happen. I always say that preparation is my meditation because I am most at peace when I feel like I am doing everything that can be done around a concern that I have. That's my calm place. People sometimes call on me as a troubleshooter in organizing, and I think that skill set largely evolved out of my task-obsessed fixation with working the problem, whatever the problem is. So it's a skill set that has had benefits for other people and definitely for my work, but there's also this massive flaw with that approach, which is that I don't always know what to do and that sometimes there is nothing I can do And those thoughts can spiral. So when you find your calm in figuring out what you can do, and what you wind up figuring out is that there's just nothing you can do, that's a wall. And when I slam into that wall, it brings up trauma because I have a catalog of those moments in my mind, and they all have a timestamp, which is a moment when I realized there was nothing I could do. Those moments when I realized that I couldn't even try and fail and take comfort in having tried. Sometimes in those moments, I will literally start repeating to myself out loud, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. As though that's the most mystifying and terrifying thing that could ever happen. And I sometimes need to be reeled in during those moments by other people. But people aren't always there. And we don't always feel like we can unload on them. So I also keep certain books and recordings close at hand, things that help me pull myself out of my thought glitch and back into something larger. And for me, that brings to mind something you talk about sometimes, which is the importance of keeping good words close by. I am just going to briefly interrupt us with a pre-recorded fundraising appeal, because Truthout is a nonprofit news publication that has thus far survived the decimation of independent news. But we can't create independent news on a corporate landscape without help from readers and listeners like you. So if you're enjoying the show, please consider heading to truthout.org to make a donation today. So I keep around me just touchstones and language for moments like this. And um, one of the touchstones that I'd like to reference is uh, Medicine Stories by Aurora Levins Morales, um, which is a collection of essays. And there are honestly so many other writers I could, I could name right now. But if you have words around you, language around you, and honestly, Kelly, your podcast, I, I put into this category of good words. One, you're a tremendous writer. Two, you communicate 
ideas really, really well. And the guests you bring on are on point, but also, um, yeah, I just, I personally have really appreciated Movement Memos podcast. I've learned a lot. So, you know, there's other podcasts out there too. What are those sources of good language, good words that even if you have a hard time believing it, what can you read? What can you try and replace whatever narrative is going on inside your head with momentarily, right? I know it's really tough. Sometimes we can be the generators for ourselves of the good words. And so um, since I was a young person, I have kept a journal. And most days it's really just like, I did this, I did that, this happened, so-and-so, blah. But honestly, in my worst moments, the most isolated moments, I have come to my own journals, notebooks, just to self-witness. And when I'm in this mode, it's not about, I've got to feel great. I've got to whatever. It's not about anything. It's really about like, here is where I'm at. Let's not think about how we got here. Let's not think about how it used to be. If you find it useful to write that out, that's cool. But I really you know, begin with just here's where I'm at. And you can describe your physical situation, your emotional situation, whatever it is. You can talk about what you want. But for me, I do experience a shift. I go, I I believe, I'm not sure, but I believe that I go from like that, like for me, sometimes my more reptilian fear-based thinking or like scarcity thinking or, um, you know, fight, flight, freeze mode into a bit more clarity, which I associate with my frontal cortex. But like I often experience a shift and the shift is all we need, right? I hope that makes sense. It absolutely does. The last time you were on the show, we talked about grief because that's something you and I have organized around together in terms of getting people's needs met, and in terms of commemoration and resisting the further normalization of mass death. With the Mutual Aid Morning and Healing Project, we have helped connect folks who are grieving during the pandemic with free services that they need. And with the We Grieve Together memorials, we have tried to hold on to the value of life as these death makers try to further normalize mass suffering and death. And so I'm thinking a lot about how grief is showing up for people in this moment, and it shows up for all of us differently. But I definitely want to name that everything we are experiencing, every level of it, no matter how insular it might seem, is woven through the reality that we have lost hundreds of thousands of people to COVID-19 this year, and will lose many more. And I know that's hard, but it almost feels worse not to name it, because I feel like there's a lot of that, a lot of refusal, and it's not helping. I do want to also think about an offer, you know, whatever um, you can do in this moment to be a companion to yourself is awesome. Um, until this moment, until this stage or, or phase changes. And just as an example, in 2015, uh, my best friend passed away. You know, it was definitely life-changing for me. She 
was basically a sister. And um, because of, you know, just how things go, right? I wasn't invited to be a part of like the um, uh, post-death practices. I, I, I definitely was in a moment where I needed to uh, kind of grieve on my own. And the thing that I did, as ridiculous as it might sound, like at the time I thought this is ridiculous, but I have to do what I can do. Um, I would literally like walk around Humboldt Park and take photos of trees. Um, my friend had given me a um, paperweight that it's like a glass paperweight from the Shedd Aquarium with a green jellyfish inside the glass. And I, I did like a photo shoot of the paperweight next to trees. It was, it was this whole thing. And I, (laughs) I posted these photos on Instagram and like somehow that brought me a sense of peace and closure and like this notion of like self companionship. But then I was able to like share out the images and um, yeah, whoever wanted to connect could but it really wasn't about that it was more about like me marking this moment for myself and and being that companion to myself and i hate that like the best thing i have to offer for someone experiencing this is is this uh idea that could sound very much like oh that's some self-care stuff but like i definitely need to you know say like my capacity to witness myself and be a companion to myself in and and really hold the complexity of my own emotions it helps me to be a better community member um pima chodron actually talks about this like you know you know we talk about healing and healing's vague and weird i don't even know what healing is but like she has some good words around this i am so glad you found that practice I also created some rituals around my father's death that were just for me, in my own space, and on my own time. And I definitely needed that in my life, and still do. This is one of the reasons I think grief practices, both personal and collective, are so important right now. For the sake of our own hearts and minds, and I also agree that those things make us better community members. I think we have to defend the parts of ourselves that feel those things and that need to feel those things. I think we have to defend those parts of ourselves the way we defend our lives, because there are a number of wars being waged right now, and one of them is a battle over what death means. And that war is not just being waged in the media or at protests or at the ballot box. It's happening inside our heads. In fact, that, that's ground zero, as far as I'm concerned. And We have to defend that space. We have to defend tenderness and empathy. And if that sounds hippy-dippy to some of you, that's probably because you're not comfortable with your own emotions. But that's okay. I'm not either. We will get through it together. The next concern that someone raised that I want to address reads, I can't stop imagining all the terrible things that could happen. I can't stop envisioning these things happening to me and my family and to other people. It keeps me awake and makes it hard to focus. Tanuja, if we were in a room with someone who opened up and expressed those feelings, what would you say to them? 
yes, this person is me. <laughs> like this person is me a couple weeks ago, for real, for real. Um, like I mentioned, I may not be in this moment right now, um, but this is definitely, this describes something that I have definitely experienced very recently. Um, great. So first of all, the part of you, <laughs> the part of ourselves that goes there, I think is a genius. And so I just want to like have some appreciation, okay, as horrifying as these visions are, there is some real genius here. And in that, this part is able to envision scenarios, break down how things might play out. The gift is that from these visions can come action and, you know, certain ways to prepare, blah, 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 so on and so forth. So my, my, Instinct on this is to like honor the great imagination, give this part of ourselves some gratitude, recognize that this imagination and this part of ourselves isn't all of us. So thank you to this part that can go there. That's really courageous and that's super dope. And can we find a way to channel this imagination toward, you know, a different direction, whatever you want to do. And I, I'll talk more about that later. But then I also want to look at the like physical situation. Like in this particular question, the person mentions, this is a nighttime phenomenon. So like, it's keeping me awake. And then I, I completely can relate. Okay, didn't get sleep. So then the next day, you're unfocused and off your off your game and it can create this really beautiful delicious cycle <laughs> okay <laughs> i don't know anything about it <laughs> just kidding um so then this is really a great moment to like call upon our like biology awareness so there are the ideas which um, thank you to Lisa Fithian who um, raised this at a recent webinar I got to attend. There's this really beautiful framework on our regulation, thinking about our, our physical and emotional regulation. Um, so Lisa mentioned, you know, this kind of hyper regulation moment, which includes like all of our fight, flight, freeze behavior. Okay. This is also connected to this notion of like, this might be the time when uh, we're not our best selves. We might go into control mode. We might go into um, snapping off on people around us, whatever it is. Okay. But it also could involve like this imagination that is, you know, super focused on all these things. So how do we down regulate? to a more centered place. Okay, you're not going to feel 100% perfect. But how do we like again do the shift? So th there are some physical practices you can do, right? And um I think about look, I track my water every day. I have a little part in my journal where I'm like, did you drink two things of water? Did you eat 
three times a day. So checking in on the basics, you know, snacks, blood sugar, that sort of thing. I think about breath. I think about breathing. Like how much oxygen am I giving my body and my brain? Like I, Tanuja, I I get this tone and I can hear it now. (laughs) And when I take the tone, (laughs) that's when I'm like, hey, T, do you need to check your posture? (laughs) Hey, (laughs) did you eat recently? You're taking the tone. And I'm not trying to tone police people over here. I'm just saying like when I hear there are certain indicators I think we all have. So this is one of my indicators. So know your indicators. Anyway, so when I hear this indicator, I'm like cruising forward, bruising, like time for a timeout, right? And uh, it literally can be a moment to be like, cool, take a walk over there, look at some trees, practice some abdominal breathing, whatever, whatever it is. In terms of the actual thoughts that you might be having in this moment, what I find helpful, this may not help you, but again, it goes back to externalization. So how do we take this mass of thought and externalize it, witness it, maybe break it down, and then see, does that create some kind of shift again? I haven't talked about mind mapping yet, and I really want to. It's a tool that I learned, thank you, from Passion Planner, where like if there's something really massive that is just looming, you write that thing down in the center of a piece of paper, you circle it, and then from that center circle, you can create branches. So I literally... Kelly, I have a page in my journal that is just like white supremacy fuckery, right? In the middle of a page in a circle. And from that center, okay, I created little bubbles that are like, here's how it's manifesting here. Here's how it's manifesting there. Here's how it's manifesting there. And so on and so forth. From each of those little circles, there were more branches. What this helped me to do was to be like, oh, okay, this actually reminds me of this one job I had. This reminds me. So it's kind of like that moment. Oh, I I miss whiteboards, but it's like that moment in really cool meetings when you get to like throw it up on a whiteboard and then you can organize things, whatever. That's what I do. That's, it really helps me. You might notice actions emerge from this practice things that you can do alone or with other people. You might also notice something and be like, yeah, that's not mine. That's not my problem. (laughs) Like that's going to have to be them. Um, Speaking about white people. Yeah. And then for anybody who is, you know, like I just want to name and celebrate, like if you're in this moment, any shift that you can make, in that imagination that is a shift away and that might be a shift toward generative possibilities, so on and so forth, that's a win. So I want you to celebrate if and when you get there. I feel like how I consume information has an impact on this for me. 
I'm very pro having access to information and I love the internet, but doom scrolling and hitting refresh constantly and then getting angsty with each other is not going to get us through this. But it's difficult because the tension we're all experiencing is real and we simply weren't built to process traumatic news at the rate that we absorb it. That's always true, but it's especially true today. Taking in the information we need without losing ourselves in the noise uh, requires intention. The Trump administration understands this. They understand that the rapid fire of the 24-hour news cycle keeps our heads spinning. That helps keep us frustrated, impatient, and ineffective. Instead of galvanized, grounded, and ready to fight from a place of strength. Our eagerness and anxiety aren't necessarily a measure of what should happen or what will be helpful. So let's hold that and remember that too, because impatience is a weapon of our enemies and they plan to use it. Because what the GOP is hoping to do is to create enough chaos that people will accept an outcome they know isn't just, just so we can continue so that we can move on and have some semblance of normalcy, even if the GOP rules over that normalcy. So we need to create our own coherence. The mainstream is not going to give us that. An algorithm is not going to give us that. And I'm not trying to judge, because we're all going to do some scrolling today, myself included, and I may tweet an unhealthy amount. But I will not be reliant on scrolling for my updates. Anyway, I know we could go on with this all day, but we have limited time, so I want to wind down our conversation with a concern that I think a lot of people are struggling with, which is that it's very clear that a lot of people see Trump as the whole problem, and it seems likely those people will disengage politically if Biden takes office. And in the run-up to elections, we always experience a lot of shushing around our issues Black people, Native people, disabled people, really everyone who is chronically abandoned or abused by the Democratic Party are told as elections near that we need to quiet down and only say good things about a candidate we know is going to screw us over. We are tone policed. We are lectured about strategy by people who know absolutely nothing about strategy or electoral organizing for that matter. We're told to wait until the better candidate takes office. And then when the dust settles, those people are gone. So what do you say to people who are frustrated right now because they feel like they are doubly screwed and having to act in solidarity right now with people who will probably abandon them later? As one of my friends put it, they will be gone and we will still be up against an empire that's trying to kill us. What do you say to someone who is trying to ward off that sense of despair. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to really affirm how much this hurts, this idea. Um, and um, for me, when I'm sitting with that level of hurt around, you know, the uh, persistence of empire imperialism and the way colonialism continues to show up and impact us today, right? I really try to think about, you know, we are already, all of us, um, 
all of us who are committed to liberation and, and freedom and prison abolition, we are already carrying the torch of those who came before us. Um, we're also carrying the torch of those who've been around us and whose guidance and tools, you know, we may not have acknowledged until now. And the work of pushing back against empire, imperialism, and colonialism, you know, it's going to continue beyond our lifetime. And that does hurt. Um, at the same time, I really hope that we can all think about this idea of cumulative creativity. And I got this idea from Aurora Levin's Morales. You know, she asks us to think about, you know, every single creative thing we do in the face of this time of destruction. Every single thing we create is a contribution to the overall ecosystem of resistance. And so, you know, what I can offer with humility is like, yes, this hurts. We are tired. We are so mad. There's so much we're doing that we really shouldn't have to be doing. And, you know, the, the work also will include doing what we can to feel our feelings, um, take those breaths, uh, because we're going to continue seeing fuckery. And the fight will continue. So back to this idea of seasons and being open to change, you know, I would invite all of us to, one, let's think beyond our own lifetime. Let's keep on reading history, learning history, and grounding ourselves within a, a lineage of resistance. Let's keep on pushing this work forward. It's valuable, whatever we do, uh, as it is framed within, right, PIC abolition, Black lives, Black liberation, right? Um, and, like, allow yourself the flexibility to be dynamic in what you offer the resistance, right? So I will admit this is definitely hard to, like, suss out and figure out in the moment because it like no one is really going to, you know, tap you on the shoulder and be like, hey, Tanuja, like we need you here doing this, um, blah. So there, it, there is a moment for you to be like creative and intentional in that. Look at the skills and talents you bring. Look at what is needed and jump in. And it is cool if you have to change the way you contribute or what you contribute. I know that the way that I was showing up at 22 is different from what I was offering at 32, and it's going to be different, like what I offer at 42. I can already feel that change, and that's okay. What I'm trusting is that, you know, whatever pieces I hold for a moment and then put down, hopefully we've all done the work of like sharing information doing political education, et cetera, so that someone else can pick up that thread so that I can pick up another thread and carry that one forward. It is so deeply important to ground ourselves in history and the stories 
we are carrying forward and building upon. I would also love to challenge us, all of us right now, to remember that there are also lessons and histories playing out here and now, in the most neglected parts of our society and in other parts of the world, that we can build upon and learn from. We have so much to learn from prison organizers who know how to find hope and alignment under conditions that most of us consider unfathomable. There are indigenous people around the world defending all life on earth, and those people are living for the work and sometimes dying for the work. And a while back when a student asked me at an event whether I'm ever afraid, I told her I am regularly afraid. I am regularly stressed out and anxious because I am human and aware of my surroundings. But when I feel like the walls are closing in, I think about those struggles, and I remember that there are already people who are dying so that I might live. There always have been. It's not just my ancestors who I owe a debt. So I try to ground myself in that sense of global struggle, of global solidarity that I know we need to build. And sometimes, not always, but sometimes, imagining those things and that path makes the world bigger. And the walls that we're closing in aren't there anymore. Also, you know, I just want to name that I have organized under neoliberals and now under a fascist. And friends, we will build power under a neoliberal administration, if that's where things land. Of course we will. And as we have seen in the last four years, the dominant politics of a nation don't shift simply because conditions are deteriorating. More people living in fear and more people suffering has not yielded some liberal and leftist army that's ready to slay the right wing and prevent austerity. And we have gotten tripped up over the last four years by a lot of the same things that liberals and the left have gotten tripped up on since forever. Conflict without containers for conflict. Cointelpro. Oppressive dynamics replicating themselves in our movements. Liberals and moderates being afraid for the last four years has not changed that. What we need, if we are really going to change everything, will come from us. And that transformation, that's going to be worth fighting for. The mere dream of it is worth fighting for. Just like these oppressive systems exist in and outside of our heads, so do our dreams, so long as we are fighting for them. And with that, Tanuja, I just want to thank you so much for this conversation. It did me good, and I hope others feel the same. Thanks, Kelly. It's always great to talk to you and keep these conversations going. I also want to thank our listeners for joining us today. And remember, our best defense against cynicism is to do good and to remember that the good we do matters. Until next time, I'll see you in the streets.
Thank you for listening to Movement Memos. This show wouldn't exist if it weren't for Truthout, and Truthout's independent news and commentary wouldn't exist without listeners and readers like you. We have no paywalls, no corporate sponsors, and no ads, except for fundraising appeals like this one. So if you can and would like to support our work, please consider dropping by truthout.org to make a donation today.